These stories were told on the Watercooler stage at the Basement Theatre in Auckland. This month, our three storytellers spoke to taboo topics, touching on mental illness, alcoholism and reluctant parenting. Please note these stories were told live and language and themes may not be for everyone. Can you guys give just a little round of applause our first speaker tonight, Ashton Brown.
but in doing so, I disappointed the people that meant the most to me. So I did all the typical gap year stuff, magic mushrooms, ecstasy, you know, just middle of the road gap year stuff. Was even stupid enough to carry ecstasy in my bag through London Airport. You know, I, I still had this concept in the back of my mind that nothing bad would ever happen to me. You know, nothing ever had. Why would anything suddenly happen? I was a pretty decent guy, and besides, I had God looking after me. No matter what happened, he was there, and he was forgiving me and playing his wee harp, and it was all good. <laughs> but I woke up one day, about three quarters of the way through the year, when I was 18, on my gap here in England, and something was different. Something had changed. And although it was nearly 10 years ago, I remember that day vividly. It was the day that I had changed. There was nothing special about the day itself or the night before. The only thing that had changed was me, inside here. In early September 2006, I wrote a diary entry that I'd like to share with you all now. And it was in very, very scrawled and erratic handwriting. And it's not just because I'm left-handed. It was titled Diary of a Madman. I've had a life of, this is the journal entry, um, I've had a life of angelic satisfaction. Know nothing of real loss or true pain, especially when, when compared to other people's pain. Over the past few months, I fear I have been guilty of taking my life for granted. And what I fear more than anything is that I am now paying the price for my reluctance to take that gift of life and treat it as the precious gift it is. Even if I were to put aside the painful amount of alcohol I've consumed this year, I still have a lot to regret, and this is my confession, my plea to God to make me feel whole again, happy again, but above all, normal again. These holidays I tried ecstasy. Now part of my fear is I'll never be the same again. My overconfidence in trying mind-altering substances has, I fear, gotten the best of me. It just started with a couple of pills and then some MDMA. In fact, that's all it was. You know, I've only done it five times in total. Once I didn't even receive a trip. And although by my standards, and especially compared to other parties, this is a very minute amount, I still know I've let myself and all I stand for down. The last pill I did was about five days ago, and other than the usual come down, which is a mix of emotion and sensitivity of touch, I was fine. Night before last, I drank a ridiculous amount of alcohol and was blind drunk. The next day I felt different. Not hungover different, like different in my head. I had this feeling of depression, paranoia, and uncomfortable nervousness, and now a day later I feel very similar. I struggle to sleep, and I'm getting nervous when alone, and I just want to feel normal again. Maybe this is my body's way of saying too much, or maybe God's telling me I've pushed it. Sad to say, I've learned my lesson. I pray to return to the Ashton I was, and now I know I never want to take things for granted again. Ever. I'm so sorry, God. Please return my feeling of normality. Please. Forever sorry. Journal entry end. So as turn again, things started happening to me and my brain that I didn't know. I spent a lot of time lost in my head with thoughts that I'd never had before and voices telling me that people were thinking about me and talking about me. And I was having paranoid thoughts of confusion and fears of permanent brain damage and losing my mind. I'd frequently go pale and shake. I couldn't focus or listen to others. I couldn't drink alcohol anymore because it just made everything worse. I couldn't be surrounded by people or anyone. I'd just sit in my room in England on my own and the thoughts wouldn't leave. I tried to convince myself that things were getting better, but I knew they weren't. Journal entry, September 18th, 2006. 
Since my last diary entry titled Diary of a Madman, some things have changed. <laughs> I no longer think I'm going crazy, nor do I think that the way I feel is long-lasting, let alone permanent. I do, however, think, that, uh, think things that I never would have previously thought. Often these thoughts make me feel uneasy, isolated, paranoid, scared, and or confused, and or in a journal entry. What are you telling me? <laughs> 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 slash? But I'm going to fight through this and I will be fine. Journal entry over. So I began to convince myself that I was already taking steps forward. You know, I told myself this was normal for someone my age and that it would pass after a few nights' sleep. I thought of other possibilities and to try and justify the feelings in my head. I came up with glandular fever after some googling. <laughs> because glandular fever messes with your head and if I believed I had that, then I could tell myself it was a physical illness and it would pass. Journal entry, September 24, 2006. Clangela fever. That's the answer to my problems. Sit no one ever. That's the key. Um, have possibly had it for weeks. And this can explain my troubled thoughts, racing mind, and uncomfortable sensations. Whilst the drug certainly didn't help, this is certainly something I'm going to pull through. I'm sick. I'm not going mental. I'm not bipolar, I've got glandular fever. I need to stop overthinking everything and pray and relax and sleep and remind myself how lucky I am and how wonderful life is. Shut up, Ashton. From Ashton. <laughs> <laughs> relax, be happy, praise God, talk to him, trust him, for he is your protector. 79 days till I'm home. End of journal. I never had glandular fever. So I prayed. Oh, how I prayed. I prayed for hours and hours. I prayed for forgiveness, prayed for healing, prayed to keep living, prayed for another chance, prayed out of fear, prayed for hope, prayed for an answer. I read the Bible. I read, I would recommend it. I read the Bible. I read chapters that were relevant and irrelevant. I wrote verses down. I drew religious pictures. I took the evil things off my walls, like pictures of scantily clad women, and I beat the posters. I hit everything that reminded me of drugs, but nothing seemed to help. I couldn't shake the thoughts of going crazy, and prayer didn't help, sleeping didn't help, nothing helped. But I still kept my belief and my faith, and I still kept my trust in the Lord. I tried exercising and eating healthy. I lost weight. I put on weight. Clearly, um, I get up in the night. I get up in the night and run, attempting to run away from myself. I pelted through the night, crying in agony, lost cold and completely alone. I needed help. Yet, I was sure I was beyond help. I was in a stage of hopelessness, and I was sure I was going to die. I was kept awake night after night, thinking, tonight I am definitely going to die. I'm never going to see my friends and family again, never going to have my own family, never going to see my home again. I then had anxious thoughts about death and eternity. I was thinking about how humans are only a brain and a shell, and where do thoughts come from, and who controls me, and where is my God? I found Bible verses to take solace in. I justified what I was going through as a learning experience that God was putting me through. I thought my religion was just testing me to make me stronger. My thinking just went round in circles. Some days I'd find solace in my religion and the Bible, and other days the same thoughts of going mental and dying returned. I felt like no matter how hard I tried to be faithful, I just wasn't being heard. I began to break. 
If even God has abandoned me, where did I turn? If God was real, why was he doing this to me? What more did I have to do? Did I really behave so badly that I deserve to be in this state of constant pain? I began to doubt. But part of me clung on to my belief as it was all I had left of who I was. So I eventually got two weeks off from work for sleep, uh, severe sleep deprivation. I hadn't slept in two weeks. I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep at all. I'd play PlayStation till the sun came up, and then I'd wander the hallways. I'd try reading myself to sleep, praying myself to sleep, crying myself to sleep. Nothing worked. I was sure I was going to die. I was so consumed by the fear of death some nights that I began to think that perhaps it was the easiest way to go. But I was so scared of never seeing my family again. I began to believe that I couldn't go through this on my own, that I wouldn't get through this on my own. And that thought scared me more than anything. These thoughts were taboo. This was my fault. This was a punishment. I couldn't share this with anyone because I was guilty. The next couple of days, I continued to seesaw. Some nights I felt okay, never great, but I felt like I could do it, like I could survive, like I could push through and be even stronger. Sometimes I felt like some divine power was just trying to get me to look at myself and who I was and who I wanted to be, like I was being challenged. I looked for ways to better myself. I tried everything to get better. I thought maybe if I passed this test, then I deserved to get better. Then I could earn to be well. So I convinced myself I was changing and growing and developing, that I was bettering myself, that I needed to change who I was to get better because at the moment I didn't deserve to be well. So these thoughts of bettering myself in order to make myself better were what inspired this next journal entry. 30th of September 2006. When you look in the mirror, are you happy with who you see? When you have had as much time to think about things as much as I have over the past weeks, you inevitably see all your imperfections and flaws. The more you think about them, the worse you feel, until you find yourself worrying about every part of life and every part of death. Although I have felt terrible lately, worse than I have ever felt, I am finally beginning to see how this could have been part of God's plan. I think that I have always been too quick to judge others and their imperfections, being fueled by the success I had in my life so far. God, I believed, wanted me to see that I too bleed when cut and have a time to be weak and a time to see things in need of correction. Success is not judged by material possessions or how highly one views oneself. Success is how God sees you living your life. And if you look at yourself with honest eyes, you will see all your imperfections. God doesn't want me to fear these flaws. He wants me to fix them. The other night I found myself fearing death. This was because I know in my heart that if I was to die now, I'd die with a lot of things that I know I want to fix. Thank you, God, for testing me. Thank you for making me stronger. I can now see the end to my spell of suffering and know I am all the stronger for it, but still far from perfect. Praise God. End of journal. Now, I wrote those words to convince myself. You know, I had to believe I'd figured it all out, figured out the reason this was happening. I had to believe that this was because I was going to be twice the man at the other end. I had to believe that. I needed to believe that it was ending and I was going to be well and everyone should go through this because it will make you stronger. I don't know if I ever believed what I wrote. 
It was almost as though I was trying to please God with what I was writing. Maybe if he saw I'd learned and grown, he'd make me better, he'd let me off the hook. Did I really believe God was listening, or was I simply so scared that if he was listening and I didn't give him the time of day, then I'd be punished even more? I don't know. Dare I not believe in God? What if he is real when I lose my faith and this never ended? You know, those feelings never ended. I was too scared to stop believing in him, even if in my heart I no longer believed. I'd been diagnosed with sleep deprivation, and it was... Again, the root of the problem was being swept under the carpet. No one wanted to talk about it or acknowledge or look in the face and admit what was actually happening. But it came to a relief to me to actually be diagnosed with something. But all I needed was help. I needed to talk to someone. So I finally emailed my dad and I told him that I really hadn't been well and had spent a lot of nights crying and in pain, like I didn't know what was going on anymore. He called me that night and I cried and we talked. I then called my parents every night for the next week or so crying. My parents didn't know what to do. They were on the other side of the world. They didn't know how to help. Talking to them made me feel so much better that the conversations always had to end and I always had to go back to being alone, sitting on the end of my bed, crying and praying and praying and praying. It was amazing how easily I could convince myself I was getting better simply because my brain could not handle admitting to the pain and depression. So I covered it up by pretending to be positive. But deep down, I wasn't getting to the core of the problem, and I didn't even know what the core of the problem was. Journal entry, 4th October. Still feeling miserable and unashed in the afternoons. I feel like I'm stoned in a bad way. I have trouble focusing, and Dad left a message with my boss telling him he wants me to come home, and my manager thinks I should think about it. I don't seem to be getting any better here, and I'm sure being at home will help. Who knows? I'll pray for the answer. What is this feeling? I'm guessing this is depression. People who think depression is just teenage tears piss me off. I used to be one of those people. Depression is real, eh? <laughs> to himself again. Um, I feel like I'm becoming a spectator of a film, and the protagonist sucks. But I'm the director and got to think more positively about the film. <laughs> Ashton, you're healthy, happy, and blessed. Remember those things. End of journal. Was I ha healthy, happy, and blessed? Are these the thoughts of someone who was healthy? I certainly wasn't happy, and it was hardly my idea of blessed. Don't get me wrong, I know I had a pretty sweet life, and on comparison to the way a lot of other people have to live their lives, I was blessed. But I certainly didn't feel blessed, and I don't believe I was being unnecessarily ungrateful at the time. But I was so scared about being seen in this way, like I had no right to be depressed. So I wouldn't share. Eventually I got home. I had admitted defeat. I knew I couldn't heal where I was, so I came home. I was greeted by my amazing family and friends, and the odd comment like, you don't look sick. A lot of people just didn't want to talk about it. It was too hard to talk about what I was going through for them and for me. Over the next few months, I continued to decline and eventually was medicated. I tried desperately to hold on to my faith out of fear, the faith that had eventuated in leaving me feeling guilty and deserving for what I was going through. Journal entry, 11th November. I'm on two antidepressants a day now. I think I'm dying a lot and have had a lot of thoughts about killing myself. I... 
I can't escape the way that I feel, this ringing in my ears, the deafening silence, the dark hole I am in shows no end. Is this what you planned for me? What is feeling right? Will I ever feel right? I hate not knowing whether or not I want to live. Why is this happening to me? Save me, Lord. I still have faith in you. Protect me, save me, forgive me, please. End of journal. That's the day I lost my faith. And I don't know if you've ever lost your faith before, but it sucks. And I still don't identify with Christianity today, and I don't have a problem with those who get strength from religion whatsoever. There was a time in my life when I did, and that's just not part of who I am anymore. So back to 2006. It's nearly over, I promise. <laughs> so back to 2006. After several weeks of psychology and medication, I locked myself in the bathroom one night and hacked at my right wrist with a razor blade. I still don't know if I actually wanted to kill myself or not, or if I just wanted to feel something. A cry for attention, you might say, sure, but not in the way you think. You see, I was so scared about what I was going through, this depression, anxiety, losing faith in a religion I've followed my entire life. These topics that we are so scared to share and talk about because of how we feel we will be judged and how people see us as weak or mental or just a fear of letting people down for not being strong enough. Our society has made this topic taboo. And it's not taboo. It's a reality. I cut my wrist that night because I needed help. And I was too scared to properly ask for it. I wouldn't be here today without my amazing parents, my friends, and family. <clears throat> they made it okay for me to talk about this. They held my hand and were patient and kind and loving and understanding. We all need to be these people for others in this life. For me, I didn't get through this personally because of prayer or faith. I got through it because I talked to people and I had people listen. And I didn't die, obviously. That would be an amazing magic trick. <laughs> and the reason that 10 years later I'm standing in a room full of strangers and sharing what is the worst aspect of my life is because this isn't a taboo subject. And it's taken me all these years to realize this. This isn't something I should be ashamed about or embarrassed about or feel weak about. And if you or anyone you know is going through a struggle, whether it's a personal depression or losing your faith in religion or in yourself, the reason I'm here today is to tell you that it's all good. You can talk about it because I'm not embarrassed and I'm not ashamed and I'm not weak and neither are any of you. And you know why? It's because this isn't a taboo topic at all. So love talk and talk and talk. Because this isn't taboo, it's just life. And we need to help each other through it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much to Ashton Brown. That was our comedian on the bill. <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you, thanks so much for sharing, Ishan. Really, really wonderful. Uh, our next speaker, Charlotte Reynolds. So, um, I was 33 and still no deep baby longings. 
<clears throat> However, I'm a sensible gal, and so even though I'm strong and dependent, and ideally thought I don't need a child to feel completely fulfilled, I still kind of worried about missing out. After all, I thought, if the trend continues and all my friends end up having kids, I'll be the one left out. Being constantly surrounded by talk of pregnancy, babies, mothering, schools, etc., etc., just goes on and on, um, and not being able to speak with authority on any of it. I didn't want to have to find whole new babyless friends, so I thought maybe I should just join the club. How bad could it be, right? <laughs> I could just have one, <laughs> you know, and still get to have a life. Uh, I could take the child travelling, you know, they could like learn languages, it would be awesome. <laughs> foolishness, foolishness. So I suggested it to the guy I was seeing. He already had one in the weekends, so he knew that it was painful. <laughs> Hard work, energy draining. Uh, but he thought it over because he kind of liked me and he was no fool. He knew about the whole woman wanting babies syndrome. We'd been together about two years. I thought he was good dad material. He had some money, but wasn't too busy climbing the corporate ladder to expect me to do all the leg work, and I rather liked him. If I was thinking I was getting on a bit for baby production, he was the equivalent in ba male baby production, so we figured we should get on to it. After all, I thought, who knew? It might take a while, having never tried it out before, you know, my reproductive system. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, 33 isn't terribly old in terms of baby making. I just didn't want to be one of those 38-year-olds going, oh, yeah, maybe I might want to have a kid someday. Uh, I did some research and came to the conclusion that if you want to get pregnant easily, don't have any known health complications, but also don't have heaps of cash for flashy procedures, best to start trying before 35. So I figured, I've got a guy right now, I could make some space in my life, might take a year or two to make it happen. So all things considered, better to be on the safe side and go for it. Well, it took exactly two goes. <laughs> yeah, just like the movies, we were looking at the little strip on the stick in the bathroom. How cliche. It's kind of weird when you've been having sex so long for it to really sink in that there's this whole thing you can achieve with it. And <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to do anything differently, you know? Like, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just keep doing it and then there's this little miniature thing suddenly inside of you it's really weird uh, of course you know it's hard for some people but I'm not talking about them I'm talking about me <laughs> we calculated back and realised that we'd conceived on April Fool's Day so <laughs> on a very drunken night so this didn't bode too well anyway I felt great three weeks just me normal me but pregnant awesome and then it hit why call it morning sickness? Are they making fun of me, I thought. Sure, it's a sickness, but besides hitting you as soon as you start to stir in the morning as if someone's punched you in the stomach, doesn't let up all fucking day. <laughs> Imagine feeling hungover every day for eight weeks. Every day, like morning till evening. <laughs> it should be called permanent hangover sickness, I thought, minus the awesome night of alcoholic reverie. So we wake up feeling kicked in the stomach, then stagger around all day in a haze, feeling too nauseous to eat, but then you have to eat because otherwise you'll feel too weak to stand. But there's lots of food you can't have, you know, like a massive list, half of which you can't remember. You don't have the energy to actually cook anyway, so it's normally down to toast and raisin boxes and juice if you can hold that down. So it's kind of like being hungover on a ship with limited food supplies. <laughs> 
wishing you could be seasick over the side, but the vomit bit never comes. And the shift is also full of horribly bad smells, and you wake up every single morning, every day for two months feeling like this, and you can't even take drugs to get better, you know, like, except Panadol. Panadol, you know. You just have to lie around and be a sick person, and that's it. You know, it really did my head in to not be able to fix it. <laughs> oh, and everyone also around you tells you how excited and happy you must be. <laughs> there was one bonus, though. My tits looked awesome. <laughs> The size I'd always wanted them to be, they were, they were only going to get bigger. So I go to see the doctor, due date, 23rd of December. Oh no, the poor kid might be born on Christmas Day, how horrible. Also, the due date happens to be the day after his half-brother's birthday. Poor kid, might have to share a birthday with Christ or Santa or, or their brother. Why didn't I just have to wait an extra month before trying to get pregnant? I'm, wonder, I'm already wrecking the kid's life and... They haven't even been born yet. <laughs> the books tell me this is a time when you won't be able to resist going out to buy your baby one little gift, like a small teddy bear. Really? I hate buying gifts for people I like. Why would I want to buy a gift for this little creature? It's already eating all my food. Isn't that enough? <laughs> so the months pass, and I keep getting bigger and freaking myself out whenever I see my reflection. <laughs> I feel like I should be reading something about pregnancy online or in books or something, but to be honest, I just can't be bothered. I just have occasional chats to people who have done it recently to glean some knowledge. I feel like I'm being pregnant all the time and I want to read about it as well, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And random people, like always women, tell me at various times that I have the glow, but I can't see it myself, you know? Sex in exciting or even favourite positions gets more and more difficult as I get bigger and bigger. feels like we're being pushed into a smaller and smaller box of possibilities. We find out we're having a girl and I'm so relieved. (laughs) The dad says to the ultrasonographer, great, another feminist for me to deal with. Suck it up. We start to feel her kicking and moving around more, which is exciting and freaky. You're not really sure what to think about it all. Was this a good idea? Pregnancy has been a bit more full-on than expected. For example, all yoga and exercise grounds to a halt in the last few months as I develop symphysis pubis dysfunction, which means that basically it's really painful to just walk like this. <laughs> but that's how I walk for like the last month, yeah. I get more apprehensive as the due date gets closer and I worry about the whole Christmas clashing with the birth thing, get kind of obsessive about it in a really tedious way. (laughs) I'm a planner and it disturbs me that I can't plan for this, you know. As it turns out, no need to worry, she was on the late side and by the end of December still showed no signs of coming, so after a gruesome 27 hours in hospital, having to have every natural part of the process being initiated medically, she finally emerged and I cried with relief and exhaustion. So that's that part done, you know. <laughs> then her first five weeks of life, which felt like five months. People tell you it will get better, but I didn't believe them because it's truly like being in a dark tunnel and able to see the light at the end. I was counting down the hours literally till the six-week mark. Being that sleep-deprived, it's like being constantly hungry. You daydream about what it would be like to be able to just lie down. You're feeding and trying to wind and changing nappies and trying to settle her. And she's crying and all you want to do is just sleep. But she won't stop crying and your real life seems so far away. It's like I was caught up in a whirlpool and able to plant my feet on solid ground. And stupid people say things like, aren't newborn babies the best thing in the world? 
Like, people actually said this to me. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I can think of heaps of better things. Just, like, going out and getting drunk would be way better than a newborn baby. Duh. <laughs> like, there's more, but that was the first thing that came to my mind, you know? I was like, eh. Oh, and the important bit, you know, well... Um, whether you can have a still have a sex life, well, it varies a lot. You might need to be a little creative for the first few weeks, um, <laughs> uh, and then you know you got your time limit. Like you know, if it's like us, there's like a 45 minute minute limit until she starts screaming again, um, and there's also frequent stops to replace the dummy, um, which really helps the mood. You know. Um, yeah, a, a baby crying must be the most sexually inhibiting uh, motive on earth. I remember reading once about a woman who had to rock the cradle with her foot during sex. I thought she was joking, but it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so, have I freaked all of you child-free people out there? <laughs> of course not everyone feels like we feel, but... She's 12 weeks old now, and it truly is getting easier. She sleeps mostly without needing to be settled and so much cuter, well, actually cuter... Um, and she smiles and has little chats as she gazes fondly at the ceiling. <laughs> but mostly the actual work is still tedious, repetitive, boring, manual labour, and it fills up all the life spaces, so I feel like I'm only getting small morsels of my previous life back. But I suspect it will keep getting better, though there is this constancy about having a child that is very disarming. Part-time children, I think, would be the way to go. <laughs> We're definitely looking at trying to co-parent anyway in a way that is efficient and gives both of us the illusion, even for parts of the week, that we are still child-free. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlotte Reynolds. Good on you. Um, our last speaker tonight, Robin Kelly. We spend our lives surrounded by stories. Stories that are designed to help us understand the world around us, help us process and accept what's going on. But every storyteller omits something. They, they miss out the things that are the most painful or the most confronting. The story I'd like to tell tonight is one about my family and how I've come to realise the importance of the things that have remained unspoken. A few years ago, I started to feel a tightness in my head. I started to feel a compression or a pressure building up inside. I thought I had some sort of thing like encephalitis or a disease, something that was growing. And um, the only things that seemed to relieve it were sleep or alcohol, and I indulged in plenty of both. And went to a doctor. Nothing was obviously wrong. So my thoughts turned towards my grandfather. My grandfather had something wrong with his head, too. He was schizophrenic and had bipolar disorder. And now, this wasn't a taboo thing in my family. We talked about it freely and openly. In fact, the story of my grandfather became a myth for us. It became something of an extremely romantic status, this, this charismatic and um, incredible, exceptional man who, yes, he had an illness that ended his marriage. Yes, he spent the last of his life and most of mine in a rest home, tormented by the things in his head, but still in the stories we told, he was a grand figure. 
I couldn't help but feel that there was a connection between what was happening for me and what was happening, and my grandfather, was this how it started for him? Now, you know, I had read that smoking weed a lot when you're young can encourage the development of psychosis, and I grew up in Dunedin with little else to do, so there was that. But I thought I should explore the myth of my grandfather, Graham, in order to better understand how that might relate to what was going on. Now, the story of Graham starts in a very familiar place. It's a boy meets girl. It's my grandfather, Graham, met my grandmother, Valerie. They met in 1949, and they met at a party at Graham's place. His whole family were there. There was his father, Rupert, his mother, Welk, his sister, Tina. Now, Welk spent the entire party sitting on the stairs. She was putting on her makeup, which for her meant caking her face in cornflour and drawing on eyelashes over her eyelids. Her name wasn't Welk, but everyone called her that, and like any good story, there's not really clear where the name comes from. We know that it's short for welcome, as in welcome mat. She certainly was not a welcoming person, but why that happened, we're not entirely sure. Many would claim that it was because she habitually slept on the kitchen floor beside the back door. She would claim to the end of her days that it was because everyone tried to walk all over her. Graham's sister, Tina, was an artist and a writer and um, severely crippled by polio. So she sat in the middle of the floor so that she didn't have to move around but would command the room around her with her conversation. She sat there with her boyfriend at the time who had a large bushy beard where he housed three live canaries. <laughs> it keeps going. Um, he would later claim to be the second coming of Christ. Graham's father, Rupert, walked in at about 11.30, late at night, in the white coat and tails of Grandmaster of the Masonic Lodge. And he looked around the room, harumphed, and just walked out again. And that was typical of Rupert. He, um, he was famously distant and silent. And in the middle of all of that was Graham. And while I've given the game away, and yes, Graham was not a mentally well man towards the end of his life, at this point in time... He was the calm centre of this family. He was the one sane member. Valerie would talk about going on a date with Graham. So they were leaving the house, and Tina, his sister, who was depressive and who was at times suicidal, had her head in the oven with the gas on. Graham didn't want to miss the beginning of the movie that they were going to see. And so he walked out of the house with Valerie, turned the gas off at the mains, and left. He had, he had a flair to him that was... Lovable. They'll talk, they, um, Valerie talks later about the time that she, now pregnant, with, married and pregnant with um, her first daughter, my mother, um, her and Graham and Tina lived together in a small flat. They shared a twin room. Graham and the heavily pregnant Valerie sharing a single bed. And Tina, once again, unwell and depressive and somewhat suicidal, so required a great deal of maintenance. Valerie, every time she left for work, would have to hide the knives before she left. Um, she talks about crawling around on the kitchen floor, having to retrieve a chopping knife from under the fridge in order to prepare dinner that night. Um, and, you know, one night she forgot about a bread knife she'd left out, came home and Tina had attempted suicide. So Graham and Valerie bundled her into a taxi and got her to the hospital and everything was well again. 
These were the stories that I grew up with around mental health. This, is, this was normal um, for me. And they weren't taboo, but they were stories that we transformed in our family. We transformed them into myth. We transformed them into my grandfather, the entrepreneur, my grandfather, the inventor. My grandparents, the restaurateurs who ran a trendy Melbourne restaurant and rubbed shoulders with Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra in the Melbourne nightclubs. We also told the stories about my grandfather the night he became my grandfather, the schizophrenic. This was a night in a farm. They were living at this time in a farm with Graham and Valerie and now their two daughters. And in the telling and retelling that we've had within our family of this, it becomes more and more like a scene from The Shining. With Graham now quite unwell and now becoming irrational and violent. And at this point in time, Valerie feared desperately for her life and for the lives of her children. And she tells the story of standing in front of the door to her daughter's bedroom with Graham advancing and stress and pressure building up to such a degree that she started bleeding from her nose and mouth. And that floored Graham. And he looked at her and said, please, I'll do anything you want, but please stop bleeding. So Valerie tried to restore some normality to the evening. She cooked dinner. She found some sleeping pills. She said, eat, take these. We'll talk about it in the morning. Graham refused to eat. Instead, he requested an entirely different meal, which Valerie, trying to mollify the situation as much as she could, obliged, cooked the meal. Graham ate. He took the pills. He went to sleep. Sometime later, when Graham was in therapy, Valerie had access to his diary. And in his diary, Graham wrote about this evening. And he wrote about how he knew, in his mind, that his wife was trying to kill him. He wrote about how the pills she was giving him were poison, how he deserved what was coming, how he wanted to stop the turmoil in his head, and how he requested his last meal, took the pills, and went to bed. This was the night that his illness made him believe that the woman he loved and the woman that loved him was trying to kill him. But I think there was something else happening in his head that made him take the pills anyway. These stories, for me, are stories. They, they have amounted to a mythical status. They are romantic things that we have told and retold. They're almost alluring for me. And they don't help me yet understand what might be going on for me. So, through long and difficult conversations with my mother and my grandmother where they have maintained the utmost grace and love and understanding, I've tried to explore the things that we don't say. I learned about how during the time that Graham and Tina and Valerie lived together, Graham and his sister Tina carried on a love affair. That the guilt of that lived with Graham for years until that evening where it broke him. I learned about how Tina would eventually succeed in taking her own life. She took sleeping pills. I learned about 
how six months after Tina's death, Valerie's own sister, Gwen, disappeared from a movie theater. Her body was found six weeks later. She'd walked to the nearest gun store, bought a rifle, walked to the rubbish tip and shot herself. And I can't help but feel that the pressure was building up so much in her head that she could only think of one way of relieving it. These stories don't have the glamour for me. They don't have the romanticism. But they're crucial for me to understand my own mental health. They're crucial for me to be able to say that today, like every other day that I can remember of recent times, I acknowledge the pressure that's building up in my head. And I acknowledge that... I would love a way to relieve it. I acknowledge that if there was an off switch, I would switch it. And this isn't me with my head in an oven, and this isn't me disappearing from the theatre. But at times, we tell stories to protect ourselves. We tell stories to understand and provide access. But there needs to be a time, one time, for me and for us, where we say the things that remain unspoken. Kia kaha. The Water Cooler would like to thank The Basement, producer Sarah Finnegan-Walsh, and New Zealand On Air for making this happen. I'm your host, Joseph Harper, and this has been The Water Cooler. See you next time.